I want to add my welcome to you all. My name is Greg Durenberger. I'm also one of the elders and the senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. It's good to worship with you today. And I want to invite you to turn to the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans as we have been making our way through this book. We'll be giving our attention in particular to Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 20. I've been reading John Barry's best-selling book entitled The Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. <laughs> it uh, doesn't make for the most comforting bedtime reading, but as is often the case, uh, history sheds significant light on the present and the outbreak of what is now known as the Spanish flu H1N1 virus in 1918. Um, it infected approximately 500 million people worldwide. That's about one-third of the world's population at the time. And it is estimated that between the years 1918 and 1920, nearly 50 million people died from this strain of influenza. Put that into perspective, as of this past week, there have been approximately 116 million reported cases of COVID-19 worldwide. That's, that's, that's less than 2% of the global population, with nearly 2.6 million related COVID deaths. Um, there have been 28.9 million reported cases in the U.S. with over half a million deaths. There have been 113,000 reported cases in the state of South Dakota with approximately 1,900 deaths. The Spanish flu pandemic to date was the plague of plagues. And one of the fascinating themes in John Barry's book, his account of this 1918 pandemic, it has to do with the conditions and the quality of the education and training for medical doctors in the United States at that time. It was, <laughs> I guess this would be to put it mildly, woeful, absolutely woeful. At the turn of the 20th century, eight out of 10 medical doctors in the United States had no formal scientific training. No formal scientific education. France and Germany were the places, that was the cutting edge of biology, virology, virological learning was happening. And, and therefore, in relationship to understanding the cause and treatment of infectious disease in the United States, we might say there was just Rather than cutting edge, there was just literally cutting. That is, if you were sick, really sick, I mean, just congested, you know, fever, anything that would be seriously symptomatic of a viral-borne illness or disease, a so-called doctor would come and take a blade and make you bleed in order to get it, whatever it was, out 
That's how they treated you. But about the time of the 1918 pandemic, things were changing. <laughs> the Spanish flu outbreak not only forced people to recognize their desperate need for effective treatment, it forced the American medical community to own up to its unwillingness to admit its need to understand the nature of infectious disease itself. Now here's the point. Nothing keeps people away from effective treatment more than their inability to see the need for it. Say that again. Nothing keeps people away from effective treatment more than their inability to see their need for it or their unwillingness to admit their need for it. And loved ones, this is Paul's burden in Romans beginning in chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. Paul's burden, Paul's eager and earnest desire is to proclaim the good news of a great Savior. And it's because he understands that, and this is, this is the main point of our text, he understands that we only go to Christ when we see our need for Christ. Unless people see their need for Christ, they will never come to Christ. That is just a fact. And in our text, Paul's aim is to open our eyes to the sinfulness of sin, which is the mother of all pandemics. And he does this in order to bring us to Christ. And so, I want to invite you now, please turn to Romans chapter 3, and uh, I invite you to follow along. I'm going to read verses 9 through 20, and if you're physically able, and as an expression of honor and regard for God's word, let's, let's stand together. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips and their mouth is full of Curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is God's holy, authoritative word. May he open the eyes of our hearts and cause our hearts to tremble and call us to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, you are, you're great, and we're little. You're the creator, and we are creatures. You are father, and we are children. You, O oh Lord, are holy, 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 and we are sinners. So help us, help us to see and feel our need and the greatness of our need for Christ and open the eyes of our hearts to behold the beauty and the glory of your great salvation in and through our great Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name, amen. You may be seated. My aim in this sermon is to persuade you of your great and desperate need for Jesus Christ. Because you see, nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for him. Jesus himself said, it's not healthy people who need a doctor. It is sick people who need a doctor. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. And the righteous, or self-righteous, will not, cannot see their need. And so, dear friends, this is what is behind, this is what's beneath all that Paul has claimed in this letter so far. All that Paul has said since chapter 1, verse 16, is intended to explain his eager and earnest desire to preach the gospel in Rome. And to sum it up, Paul is eager and earnestly desirous to preach Christ. It's because people only go to Christ when they see their need for Christ. We only flee to Christ when we understand that our only safe refuge is in Christ. And so, for this reason, Paul lays out in Romans chapter 1, verses beginning in verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, now verse 20, the charge. That's what he calls it. This is the charge. And it is a serious charge. Treason. Sedition against God. We are all under the power and the guilt of sin. And 
Paul now summarizes this charge against us in chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No. Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And Paul's making is more than an accusation. It's more than him bringing some allegation. This is Paul laying out the evidence, the evidence against everyone. He proves our guilt and he secures a conviction. All men and all women, without any exception, all boys, all girls, each and every one, both Jews and Gentile people, are sinful, guilty, and without any excuse before God. And already, on account of this, we are under God's wrath. We are objects of His condemnation. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed, being revealed, presently revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And then the way that Paul demonstrates this universe, the universality of human guilt is he divides up the human race into several categories and then what he does is he indicts them one by one. And in each case, his method is the same. He first reminds them of their knowledge of God and his goodness and then in doing so reminds them that they are they're not ignorant they all know something about God and about his goodness and then secondly Paul confronts them he confronts them with the uncomfortable reality that they have not lived up to that that they know they have not lived up to their knowledge. Instead, they have suppressed what they know. They have stifled what they know. They have stuffed what they know. They've resisted what they know. They've actually contradicted it by continuing to live a life of unrighteousness. And therefore, they're guilty. Inexcusably guilty before God. Nobody, this writes one commentary, Nobody can plead innocence because nobody can plead ignorance. And so Paul then divides and summarizes the human race into these categories, four categories. I'll just review what we know, okay? We already covered this, but it's helpful to see it again. First, there are the, the, there's the deprived, or excuse me, the depraved Gentile world. Paul describes them in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Their lives are marked by idolatry, immorality, all manner of antisocial behavior. He lists about 21 items, probably just as a sample. And, uh, and then he says, according to Romans 1.19, what can be known about God is plain to them. They know. They all know. They all know everything that is necessary to understand that God is 
and that God is good, and therefore they are guilty and without excuse before God. And then second, there are what, I think it's helpful, what one commentator described as, or referred to them as the critical moralists. According to chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, they could be either Gentile or Jewish, but what characterizes them, what may, may describe them as they are, they're highly developed critical faculties. <laughs> that is, they notice and they register, often with head-wagging disgust, um, people's faults, people's failures. In other words, they, they profess to these very high ethical standards, and then they apply these high ethical standards to everybody except themselves. And therein lies their guilt, which is also inexcusable, since according to Romans 2.14, it says, When Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So whether one has ever heard the actual word of God or not, as beside the point. God created every human being with, with his law stamped on our hearts. We all know it's in our nature, our our created nature to know right and wrong. And we are quick to point out and judge right and wrong. The shortcomings of the right and wrong we see in everybody but us. And then third are the so-called self-righteous Jews. They boast of their knowledge of God's law, but according to Romans 2.23, they do not obey it. Paul writes, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. They know who God is more than anybody. They've been entrusted with his word. They are conspicuous people marked by circumcision, the sign of God's covenant. But in spite of all that they know, they are as guilty of unfaithfulness and unrighteousness as anybody else. And then we come to Romans 3, 9 to 20. And here, Paul now is bringing his indictment to bear upon the entire human race. His summary of the human condition is expressed in verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And so, in each case, Paul's argument is essentially the same. You know. You know the righteous requirements of God, and yet you have persisted 
in unrighteousness. Loved ones, this is, this is the essence of sin, right? It's rejection of God, rejection of truth. And therefore, Paul says, you're guilty. You are guilty and you are without excuse. And not only are you without excuse, you have no hope. Apart from the grace of God who justifies sinners who believe in Jesus. And so now in verse 9, sin is personified like a tyrant who, who holds all humankind imprisoned in guilt and judgment. Paul writes, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There's this universal, categorical bondage of guilt. All are charged. All are under its rule. All are governed by sin. And, and Paul supports the charge from Scripture. He draws from six separate Old Testament quotations, all of which bear witness in their own way to the universal reality of this charge of sin and guilt. And in doing so, Paul paints this biblical portrait of the sinfulness of sin and the reason for our desperate need for a Savior. So let me, let me draw your attention to three aspects. First, there is the ungodliness of sin. According to verse 11, no one seeks for God. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, in this case, sin is characterized as, as a, it's defiant rebellion against God, the sinfulness of sin, it, it lies in its rejection of God's authority as well as rejection of God's care and love and all that he promises to be for people who would just love and trust him. The sinfulness of sin lies in its turning away from and treasuring the infinite beauty and soul-satisfying worth of all God would be for us. It's the revolt of the self against God. It is the dethronement of God and it is the enthronement of myself on the throne where God alone should be seated. The fundamental essence of sin is, as one commentator put it, getting rid of the Lord God and doing all things one's own way. Sin is self-deification. And whereas the great commandment says to love the Lord God first and love our families and neighbors second and love myself last, sin inverts it. It's the exact reversal. Love me first, love my family and neighbors second. And God, well... He's somewhere in the background, if anywhere. 
The ungodliness of sin is our ongoing attempt to ungod God from us. Second, the sinfulness of sin is seen in its pervasiveness. The pervasiveness of sin. Loved ones, sin affects every part of our human constitution. It corrupts every human faculty, every human function. And Paul draws on the Old Testament to describe how comprehensive is sin's impact. According to verse 11, sin affects our minds. No one understands. Sin affects our will. No one seeks for God. According to verse 13, sin has this extraordinary effect over the organ of human speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And their mouth is full of curses. And expressions of bitterness. So you see, the the organ of speech is clearly the means by which more harm is done than perhaps any other human faculty. But sin spreads its viral effect not only through our mouths, but through our feet. Where we go, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery. And then, of course, sin affects the eyes, both what we see and how we perceive what we see. Verse 18, there is no... Fear of God before their eyes. And so all of our organs are in rebellion against God. Friends, this, this, is, the, this is the biblical doctrine of total depravity. Some of you have heard that term before, might, might have been disturbed by it. <laughs> It's necessary, I think, for us to be clear on what we mean by total depravity. Total, total depravity, as at least we understand it and teach it here, it does not impl- mean or imply that humans are as depraved or as sinful as they possibly could be. We'll, that's obviously untrue. Um, I mean, not every person in this room is a Drunkard, thief, adulterer, murderer, terrorist. You could all be worse in that regard. The totality of our depravity refers rather to sin's extent and how it affects absolutely every part of our being. So J.I. Packer, I think, has a very helpful definition when he writes, total depravity signifies a corruption of our moral and spiritual nature that is total, not in degree, for no one is as bad as he or she might be, but in extent. It declares that no part of us is untouched by sin, and therefore no action of ours is as good as it should be. And consequently, nothing in us or about us ever appears meritorious in God's eyes. There's nothing about us that commends us as being good or righteous 
in the sight of God. We cannot earn God's favor no matter what we do. Unless grace saves us, we are lost. Total depravity entails total inability. That is, the state of not having it in oneself to respond to God and his word in a sincere and wholehearted way. And thus, every part of our humanity, our minds, our emotions, our will, our bodies, our sexuality, every part, every part, all the parts, in and out, are corrupted. And then, thirdly, the sinfulness of sin means that it is, it is universal. This pervasive ungodliness and corruption, it is true of everyone. Verse 9, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Verse 19, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Dear friends, you who are in this room, And those of you who are watching, listening via the live stream, listen. The idolatrous and immoral world, that's us, is without excuse. Every critical moralist, I can think of a few, not me of course, but uh, I can think of a few here are without excuse. These self-righteous religious are without excuse. We are all without excuse. And God's purpose is to stop every mouth. His purpose is to hold the entire world accountable Every human being. One commentator writes, verse 19 evokes the picture of the defendant in court who, given the opportunity to speak in his own defense, is speechless because of the weight of evidence which has been brought against him and without saying a word awaits his condemnation. All that God's word says, it's telling the world and all the inhabitants of the world, we are without excuse. Why? On, on what grounds? We've all rejected God. We've all rejected the truth. How so? Every human being has known God has known God's law, whether it is written on a stone tablet or on the pages of Scripture or on 
our consciences. And we have all disregarded God in his word. And therefore, no one can plead innocence because no one can plead ignorance. And that's why, according to verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, what the law supplies, what the law gives is knowledge of sin. But the law cannot and does not give the forgiveness of sin. Martin Luther famously said, the function of the law is not to justify, but to terrify. And so to drive us to Jesus Christ for salvation. So my dearly loved brothers and sisters, how do we respond to this devastating portrayal of human sin and guilt? Two ways. First, we must make as certain as we can that we ourselves accept this divine diagnosis of our sin and guilt as true. And in accepting it as true, that we have fled from the just judgment of God upon our sin and guilt to the only refuge that there is, that is to the Lord Jesus, the Christ who died for our sins on the cross. We have no merit to plead. We have no excuse to make. We stand, each and every one of us, condemned, speechless, mouths shut. But God, for the sake of his great love, with which he has loved us himself in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, on the cross, has borne the condemnation that we deserved. And it is for this reason that we can be justified and accepted before God if we put our trust in Jesus. Loved ones, have you done this? Are you certain you have fled for refuge to Jesus? His sacrifice alone is worthy of God's acceptance. He alone, we're going to sing this in a few minutes, He alone is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll. Our only hope is God alone through faith alone and the sin-atoning death of Christ alone. Are you trusting Jesus Christ alone? as the only refuge that there is for you, for your sin and guilt. And secondly, we simply cannot keep the news of this truth, this reality, this precious gift of forgiveness of sin, acquitted guilt to ourselves. Spread the news. Is this not the real reason that Paul was so eager to preach the gospel in Rome? It wasn't, it wasn't just for a, an adventure. 
by the empowering presence of the Spirit of Christ. Paul knew and felt the reality that unless people see their need for Christ, they will never come to Christ. And oh, that I could turn you all into preachers, each and every one of us of this good news, all around us, in our city, in our neighborhoods, and to the nations and people groups of the world, all men and women who know enough about God and His holiness to make their rejection of Him and His laws inexcusable. They stand condemned and we know it. We know it's true. And the only hope for them of justification is in Jesus, the Christ. Do you believe this? How can we keep this news to ourselves? We must speak of Christ. Their mouths are closed. Let our mouths be opened in witness and testimony and proclamation. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we're guilty and we're speechless about it. We're condemned because of it. What shall we do? Where do we go? What do we say? Loved ones, have you fled to Jesus for refuge? Have you thanked him that he died for you? Come to him. Put your trust in him. Ask him to become your savior. Cry out to him for mercy.